0: Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 to 21. When Cephas, who is Peter, came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. In the sitcom Friends, When Monica and Chandler get married, they ask their friend Joey to perform the wedding ceremony. And a few weeks before the big day, Joey sits Monica and Chandler down and runs by them the introduction to their wedding ceremony. And it goes something like this. We are gathered here today on this joyous occasion to celebrate the special love that Monica and Chandler share. It is a love based on giving and receiving, as well as having and sharing. And the love that they give and have is shared and received. And through this having and giving and sharing and receiving, we too can share and love and have and receive. Needless to say, Monica and Chandler aren't thrilled with this wedding speech. It's a bit on the repetitive side, a bit on the wordy side. But this week, as I studied Galatians chapter 2, and especially as I was reading what John Calvin has to say about faith, this felt like a pretty accurate summary of what I was reading. Faith, it turns out, is a rather difficult thing for us to wrap our heads around and it's maybe best described through a somewhat repetitive, somewhat wordy definition. We have, we give, we share in, and we receive faith. If you don't believe me, here is how the Heidelberg Catechism defines true faith in question answer 21. What is true faith? True faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in Scripture, it is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit creates in me by the gospel that God has freely granted, not only to others but to me also, forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. These are gifts of sheer grace granted solely by Christ's merit. So here we see, faith is a thing we have, a thing we give, a thing we receive, a thing we share. And in Galatians chapter 2, Paul is emphatic that it is by this faith and nothing else that we are saved So this morning we are going to look closely at what faith is, but first we need to know why Paul is bringing this up in the first place. Paul has spent the first chapter and a half of this letter defending the gospel of Jesus Christ and the authority by which he preaches the gospel. This is not some gospel, he says, that's been given to me by other people. I'm not trying to fit in with anyone, to say what people want me to say. This is the good news as I have received it from Christ Jesus. And Paul is so uninterested in human approval and so dedicated to this gospel that he gets up and confronts Peter. Peter, the the one on whom Christ's church is built. Peter, the apostle above all other apostles. Peter messes up and Paul calls him out on it. Peter, or in the Aramaic Cephas, had at one point been eating with Gentile Christians, non-Jews who had come to faith in Christ. And this probably refers to the dinners that were eaten together in association with the Lord's Supper. When the church gathered for this supper, it was not just a piece of bread and a thimble of juice, but a full meat, potatoes, and vegetables kind of meal shared together. And it's it's worth noting that Peter was eating with Gentiles. The, The Torah, the Jewish law, was really concerned with cleanliness and purity. And so the law had always been really strict on what the Jewish people could eat and who they could eat with. Eating with Gentiles had been verboten for many, many centuries. But then Christ came and fulfilled the law and welcomed Gentiles into the covenant, into this family, and so welcomed them to the table. And for a while, Peter was eating with them at the table. Until a group of guys showed up who were adamant that eating with uncircumcised people, or Gentiles, was still a no-no. Until those people were circumcised, until they bore the sign of the covenant, you could not share a table with them. Those people were still unclean. Those people still weren't in. They still weren't righteous. Well, Paul has no time for this. On the one hand, he says that Peter and the others who are following him are backing away from, who are backing away now from the table. He says that they're hypocrites because he knows that they don't actually believe that the the men, they don't actually believe what these men are saying about the importance of circumcision, but they're just adopting a posture, a pose, trying to save face before this group of people. And, Paul says, they should know better than this. We who are Jews by birth, he says, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. There's a veiled reference in verse 16 to Psalm 143, which begins, Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for mercy. In your faithfulness and righteousness, come to my relief. Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one living is righteous before you. While the Jewish people did place a lot of emphasis on the importance of following the Torah, there was still an implicit understanding that only God could save. They could not save themselves. The people had always been reliant on God's mercy to keep them from his judgment. And now, says Paul, that reliance looks like faith in Jesus Christ. We have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So what does this look like? We heard, just last week, we heard that we are saved by Christ and Christ alone. We aren't saved by the things we do. We don't need to add anything to the gospel. We don't need to add anything to God's grace. We aren't saved by going to church or praying a lot or saying the right things or listening to the right music or anything except Jesus. We are saved, or in Paul's language, we are justified. We are made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. Which still makes this sound like this is something we are responsible for, right? We have to have faith. So, let's unpack this. What exactly is faith? What does faith look like? And how do we understand faith as it is paired with grace? So let's put the definition from the Heidelberg Catechism back on the screen. And we're going to add at the bottom this definition from John Calvin, taken from his Institutes of the Christian Religion. He says, Now we shall possess a right definition of faith, if we call it a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence toward us, founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Unsurprisingly, we can see that there's quite a bit of overlap between the Catechism and Calvin, so let's pick this apart. First, we see that faith is knowledge. Now, this isn't just head knowledge. This isn't simply understanding or comprehending things that we experience in the world, like nine plus eight equals 17, or the knowledge of why the leaves turn color in the fall. Calvin says that this knowledge is an assurance of those things we cannot comprehend and yet believe to be true. And he's quoting here Hebrews 11 verse one. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So this is a, a knowledge that we know in our head but also in our heart. It's something that seeps inside of us, grounding us, holding us fast. Calvin calls this a firm and certain knowledge. The Catechism says it is a sure knowledge. This is a a knowledge upon which we can rest. Even if we can't understand God's love rationally, even if we can't always understand why he does what he does, we know that everything God does, he does out of goodness and love and faithfulness. And so we can trust in his benevolence in his goodness. Which seems like rather a tall order, right? If we can't understand fully this love, if we can't wrap our minds around God and make sense of God, then how do we come by this knowledge? Calvin puts it this way. This knowledge is both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And the catechism, faith is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit creates in me by the gospel. And so this is the the gift part, the receiving of faith. It's the Holy Spirit who first initiates faith in us. He moves us to believe, moves us to trust, moves us to accept the promise of salvation through the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus and claim that salvation as our own. And it's the Holy Spirit who causes that faith to grow, leading us into deeper and deeper knowledge of God, of Christ, of the the knowledge, the assurance of our own salvation. And the Spirit does this by stirring in us a deeper desire to know God, to know Christ, to know the promise of our salvation. This This knowledge isn't just floating around in the clouds somewhere, seeping into us through osmosis. This knowledge comes to us as we enter into deeper and deeper relationship with Christ, which we do by spending time with Jesus, spending time in prayer, spending time in his word, Calvin says, faith needs the word as much as fruit needs the living roots of a tree. Scripture is our foundation, the words by which our faith is deepened and supported and sustained. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells the listening crowd this parable. Everyone who hears my words and puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house, but it did not fall, for it had its foundation on the rock. Without a good foundation, a house will be unstable. Without food, the body will grow frail. Without deep roots, a tree will not bear good fruit. And without the word of God, our faith will grow frail. So yes, faith is a gift. It is the spirit moving within us, orienting us toward God. But do we receive that gift with open arms? Do we sense this prompting of the Spirit and follow that prompting? Do we long for a richer communion with Jesus, long to spend time in his presence so we might have a deeper knowledge of the goodness of his grace? Because it's this grace that is at the very heart of our faith. It's the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, says Calvin, the forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness and salvation that are gifts of sheer grace granted solely by Christ's merit. At the heart of our faith is the faithfulness of Jesus, his faithfulness to the mission of the Father by which Jesus came into the world as a human being and took all the judgment humanity deserved upon himself. He took it all the way to the cross, bearing our sin so we might stand pure and blameless before the Father. There is now nothing more we have to do, no law we have to follow, no special words we have to say to secure this salvation for ourselves. Only believe and trust in the promise that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, loved us and gave himself for us. It is the knowledge, the assurance of this truth that the Spirit leads us into more and more through communion with Christ. And so faith is not just a a cursory, one-time acceptance of the gospel story, but the ongoing, active trust in the promises of God, a regular participation in and receiving of God's promises. I heard a retired pastor this week marvel at how his faith is still being strengthened. He said that recently the the lordship of Christ had hit him in a new and profound way. And he couldn't make sense of why he had experienced this revelation after so many years of ministry, but you could hear the gratitude in his voice, the awe that the Spirit was still leading him into deeper truths that grounded his trust in God. And faith is also not just the absence of doubt, but the assurance that even as we experience doubt, and have questions and struggle to make sense of things, that the faithfulness of God through Christ Jesus is our foundation. And faith is not a burden, but leads us into freedom. Freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, freedom from anxiety, freedom from fear. Faith is an assurance that we cling to, a gift we receive, a trust that we give, and a sharing in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So may our faith grow and deepen. May we never stop seeking, never stop turning our lives towards Jesus. Never stop experiencing this glorious truth encapsulated in an old, old hymn. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. Would you pray with me? Lord our God, thank you for the gift of faith. Thank you for the promise of salvation through Christ alone, the promise upon which our faith is built. Stir in us, Holy Spirit, a desire to know this promise more and more, that we might believe, not just with our minds, but deep in our souls, the gift of your faithfulness to us, that we might trust in you alone. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.